just before you start listening to this podcast, a reminder that we have a special subscription offer. You can get 12 issues of The Spectator for £12, as well as a £20 Amazon voucher. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher if you'd like to get this offer. Hello and welcome to The Spectator Books Podcast. This week we're talking about Laurie Lee, the author, most famously of course, of Cider with Rosie, a bucolic kind of novel come memoir of his childhood in Gloucestershire. And I'm not unfortunately joined by Laurie Lee because that would have to be through a medium, he having died in about 1997. But I'm joined instead by David Parker, who is a filmmaker who made a film or series of films with Laurie Lee shortly before he died, and who's now published a book called Laurie Lee, down in the valley, a writer's landscape. David, welcome. Can you tell me a bit how this book came about? Because it's, it's Laurie Lee's words, but not written. That's right, actually, yeah. It's, it's a nice story. I wanted to make a film with Laurie Lee back in 1994 for ITV, and um, I pitched the idea to the company, and um, they laughed and said, uh, we've tried to get Laurie Lee many times, and he just won't do television. So thanks, but no thanks. And I was a bit puzzled by this, and um, so um, I, uh, I, I contacted Laurie Lee's agent at the time, a chap called Charles Walker. In those days, I could get him on the phone, and I said, I'd like to make a film about Laurie and the influence of Gloucestershire and the Cotswolds on his writing. And he laughed and said, no, Laurie doesn't do television. He certainly wouldn't do that. But thanks for, thanks for your interest. But I carried on talking to Charles, and I was saying to him, wouldn't it be a great tragedy if Laurie dies? or when he dies, and nobody's had the chance to hear from the man himself about what inspired this amazing writing. It's so intense about the landscape and the, the people and the culture of the, of the Gloucestershire area. And he said, well, I think that's true. Why don't you, why don't you put that in a letter to Laurie, and um, I'll give it to him. So I wrote to Charles and pretty much said this to Laurie, and then thought nothing more about it. I was busy making... TV programmes on Exmoor at the time, and I was away quite a lot. Anyway, one night I got home from researching Exmoor, and there was a message on my answer phone. My son had put the message on, a little squeaky voice, saying that we're not here, but if you leave a message, we'll get back to you. And this voice came on the end of the phone saying, what a really lovely answer machine message. Can you tell your daddy that Laurie Lee called him? And the sort of hairs on the back of my neck stood up, and I called him. And he said, what do you want? And I said the same thing. And he said, I'm sorry, I, I, don't, I don't do interviews at all anymore. I've given up on that. And I certainly don't do television. So I carried on chatting to him, saying the same thing, really. Wouldn't it be a great tragedy if you die and nobody has had the chance to hear from you about why and how you wrote? And he said, well, come up and talk to me about it. So I went to see him in this iconic pub in Slad, his home village, called the Woolpack. And we sat down and had a beer. He had a whiskey as well, and he had a little carrier bag with lots of notes in the carrier bag. And we chatted, got on, I think got on pretty well. And he said, look, he said, David, he said, um, I'd really like to help you to make this programme, but the thing is I don't want to be in it. And I said, Laurie, that would be very difficult to do, to make a programme without you being in it. He said, mm, I can see that. And then he said, what are you doing now? And I said, nothing, I've just come to see you. And so he said, well, come with me. And he took me in my car and we drove to three or four places around the pub, around the Slad Valley, where he'd grown up. And he got out of the car and in each place he just told me a story. And it was absolutely mesmerising. His ability to tell a story was just absolutely wonderful. 
And at the end of this little journey in the car, I said to him, um, you know, if I'd had a camera, I could have made the film this afternoon. And he laughed and he said, well, I still don't want to do it. And so I said, what about if we didn't do it with a film camera? Suppose I just came back with a, a tape recorder and recorded you on sound. How would you feel about that? And he said, yes, I think, I think that would be all right, actually. So I went back to Bristol, got a friend who was a sound recordist, and we went back one Saturday morning in the spring of 1994 and went down to the village pond. Um, Cathy, his wife, had dusted him up and you know, made him warm, and um, we took him down to the pond. And then he just talked. And then when people started arriving at the pond to go walking, we moved on to the cricket pitch near Sheepscombe. So we had two locations and the morning. And I thought, this might be the only chance I'll ever get to get interview, get an interview with Laurie Lee. So I got as much as I could from him, really. And we really exhausted him that morning. But he was absolutely fantastic. Why do you think he was so reluctant to be on film? It's a really good question, isn't it? A lot of people ask me that question. I think... I think vanity was part of it, you know. I, I mean, he was an incredibly good-looking younger man. He was very attractive to women. He was this life and soul of the party. When he went out, he could play a guitar beautifully as well as a violin. He could play the flute. He was an entertainer. But as he got older, I think the, the, the look, in looking in the mirror, as we all do when we get older, we're not so enticed by our own looks as we were when we were young. And I think that was that was part of the reservation. And then I think, of course, Laurie's life is a, is a complex life, was a complex life, and I wasn't sure that he would... Well, he wasn't sure. He wasn't sure that I wouldn't drill down into areas of his life that he might not want to talk about. I was thinking about that in retrospect, really. And he never did an interview again, and not, not a serious... Not a television interview again, actually. Yeah. Is it, I mean, that thing of the attractiveness... It's amazing how kind of libidinized his descriptions of the landscape are, isn't it? You yes. know, there's a real, you know, always there's this sense of girls and boys and... Yes, you know, yes, he's, yes. The one part of a poem uh, that's in the book, you know, we're talking about girls with their teeth as sweet as cucumbers and their cheeks, rosy cheeks, and um, bare flesh when the children are playing in the, um, in the sheep wash. Yes. coming down to the sheep wash lorry and they're all running around and flesh is showing all the time in the sheep wash. Yeah, it's, um, it's quite evocative, isn't it? It is. Actually, maybe we should hear that poem. As such a morning it is when all things smell good and the cheeks of girls are as baked bread to the mouth. as bread and bean flowers, the touch of their lips and their white teeth, sweeter than cucumbers. And what was you know, your conclusion to kind of how how important the Slad Valley was in forming Laurie Lee, because, of course, you know, he did leave, didn't he? Phenomenally important, I think, actually. There's a really, really evocative piece in the book where, uh, towards the end of the book, where I ask him why he came back, you know, he, why he left and then why he came back. And he talked about how he perceived the landscape and that valley as a child, thinking it was... It was like everywhere else, because he didn't know anywhere else. And then he went away and came back 40 years later and realised that this valley was like nothing else on earth. It was that unique, it was that beautiful. And that was a really evocative piece, I think, towards the end of the book. And when I went away as a young man, I was away for 20 years, and I came back to Slad, and I was waking in the morning, very heavy, dreamy, heavy, drugged, almost drugged sleep, I was waking, and as I was waking, I heard this blackbird singing. 
and I'd forgotten I'd left the village, and I thought, he sounds like a Gloucestershire blackbird. He sounds like a sad blackbird. And then when I was fully awake, I realized it was a sad blackbird. It was a Gloucestershire blackbird, and I hadn't heard it for 20 years, but it was instantly recognizable. Because they mimic, just as we do, we mimic our fathers and our mothers and our grandparents, and these birds who come back to the same wood, same field, same hedgerow, and nest where the parents nested, and are brought up by their parents. They mimic their parents, so if they've been flying back to Slad, and, and God bless them, it's a good place to fly back to. They mimic their parents, so naturally they have a glossier accent. So um, the valley for him, I think, wasn't just a physical landscape, although that is quite important. He talked in the book about how the valley being a narrow, tight landscape created a tightly knit community where everybody knew everybody else's business. And that was important, that everybody knew your business as well as you knew everybody else's business. And that was the, that was the coder of that valley. So the people were very important to him. And um, in the book, he talked about language, about how people in that valley may not have a, an extensive vocabulary, but my God, they could use words brilliantly. They could tell stories like Homer could tell stories. No wireless, no television, and no newspapers, very few, because the older souls couldn't read. Because of that start, uh, I don't suppose many of the villagers, who you can still hear around, began by not being able to read. They had very compact vocabularies, but they told stories with such command of their vocabulary, they meant perhaps 200, 500 words. They never had to hesitate and grab and use second-hand cliches and say, at the end of the day, let's have a level playing field and having said that and and um, all this jargon you get with second-hand Westminster, Westminster, Palace of Westminster, not Ab Westminster Abbey, unfortunately, and that's gone too. They, teach, they, they speak the same language now. But to have that command of language that this, these valley people had, they could tell a story as the the mariners in Homer's day must have been able to tell a complete command of a, a very af effective vocabulary, born in them, nourished in them as they grew up, and they could set your hair on in retelling the old dramas of the valleys. But that business of storytelling and everybody knowing everybody's business, he talks interestingly in the book, doesn't he, about how you've transgressed a taboo, you know, he, when he wrote Cider with Rosie and he used real incidents and real people, you know, he writes about how, you know, actually that was that was not to be forgiven. Yes, I, I, I raised this with him in the pub, his sort of second home, really, the Woolpack, terrific pub, actually. And I asked him about the problem about going back and he thought for a long time and he said it was a mistake. You shouldn't go back. You should never go back. And then he talked about how um, it's okay to talk about people, about your friends, about your neighbours in the pub, but as soon as you've written it down, as soon as it's on paper, then you're in trouble. And he said, I got into a lot of trouble. No, I, I think it's, it's true that one should never return. Certainly not. 
No, I've been forgiven. I returned at a difficult time because Vincent hadn't told a lot of stories as I had about the village. And you can tell any story in the bar about your neighbours, and it's a joke. But you put it in print and you've broken a taboo. So I had a lot of... It took me a lot of time living that down. But if you live in a village, there is this tight, uh, enclosed community. We're all, we're not living, we're not working out a soap opera. We're living our own particular history and sharing our particular history of failures, disasters and happiness, and life and death and marriages. But at least it's shared. And each of us, perhaps at times, think we're isolated. We know the life, we know the secrets of everybody else, ex except that we ourselves are protected by isolation. We're not. We know the secrets of everyone else, thank God, at the expense of their knowing our secrets too. And this is something one must admit and acknowledge and be glad of, that to share the life of a community, you have to be part of the community. You can't watch it from a distance. You have to be involved in it as they're involved in you. He also tried, I was kind of impressed by, he tried to get some free cider on the back of Cider with Rosie. I mean, this is, I mean, you know, un unusual kind of marketing now, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, uh, it's funny really because um, Gloucestershire used to be a terrific cider producing county. I was cycling in the Vale of the River Severn a couple of weeks ago and the, the pear orchards, the perry orchards were huge but nobody was picking the pears and nobody was picking the apples and cider had declined pretty much. Um, it, cider had declined well before Laurie um, was writing. He didn't drink cider himself, he drank beer and whiskey in the pub when I saw him so it was, re it was a really strange bit of proactive marketing to try and persuade cider makers to back the book, I think. It didn't need any backing either. I mean, it just sold ridiculously well. Didn't it? But I just remember the cider makers, when he said, you know, this is going to be good stuff for you, you should you should send me some free cider, they wrote back and said, no, you brought the whole valley into disrepute by admitting to an affair with an underage girl. I mean, it does sort of raise the question in this generation, would, would Laurie Lee have been done by me too for cider with Rosie back in the day? I um, talked to him about that Rosie incident. The, it's it's an absolutely memorable incident, isn't it? Inside with Rosie, and of course he was only a child as well. I mean, these were two children skirting around the fringes of sex, and um, he described the girls who lay in wait for us boys who wanted to go and help with the men as temptresses, temptresses of summer. But it was young girls or, or schoolgirls tempting schoolboys. I say I think it's very very innocent actually. Yeah. And what, I mean, it's, it, one of the surprises of the book is you've got, you know, Laurie Lee, who one thinks of as sort of fixed pretty much, you know, where side of it, you know, in the first half of the 20th century, talking about you know, every, all these young people are watching Neighbours now. And there Laurie Lee was even aware of Neighbours, you know, it's, it's kind of extraordinary. How did he react to change? I think he embraced some change. Um, he said in the book he was desperate for a computer, although they gave him a computer for his 80th birthday and he was never able to use it. I think he, he traded 
in part on on reflection and uh, the longing for a, a past that had um, had disappeared, but was still the, the the future appealed to him in different sorts of ways. Actually, although he was very critical about some aspects of the future, he he was very critical of some of the planning decisions that were taking place uh, that would have created housing estates on the other side of the valley. He was desperately critical of the local authority for closing the local school because the local school was the hub of um, of the community. And uh, of course, when he was a child. It was where all his childhood experiences took place. So I think he was. Um, I think he, he faced both ways, really, on the on the future. But of course, it was the past which really made him, because it's reflections on a on a world that was on the cusp of change, wasn't it? The 1930s, where everything was changing, and he just captured, I think, that moment before before the roof fell in, really. Yeah, and it, it was interesting that he was quite. There's a crossness in the book about the way in which television treats historical events and historical stories. You know, he says, it's, well, you know, we didn't have starch shirts. We didn't, you know, he was like, we were all quite grubby. Mm. And there's that detail, what he says when they were filming Sided with Rosie. That's right. He, um, he, he said the producer was a really nice chap. But, of course, all the children were dressed by the wardrobe in brand-new, sparking, spanking clothes. And he asked the producer to get all the little boys who were representing people like him to take off their caps and jump on them to dust them up because, you know, we weren't smart, we were grubby, we didn't wear ties, we wore shirts for more than one day at a time. When they made, I remember when a very decent chap was full of affection when he made Side with Rosie about 15 years ago. He put all the school kids in, all the girls were in white pinafores and all the boys were wearing brand new caps. <coughs> straight out of the wardrobe. Well, we were very poor and ragged, and I thought that was a misjudgment. So I said, before you shoot, get all the boys to jump on their caps, which they were very happy to do. And they put them in the gutter, and they all whooped and jumped and got the caps into what I call, uh, give them a sense of realism, ragged and muddy. So they were all right. But they don't always remember to pay the past. It's rightful claim that we were a grubby lot. And that was part of the reality of life. We were filthy, we were grubby and unkempt. What he was trying to do there, I think, was to pull back on this sense of um, the rosiness of the world of Cider with Rosie, that actually it wasn't quite quite like that. And um, poverty was rife in that valley. And um, although as a child, you don't see poverty in the way you might see it as an adult. Uh, but looking back on it, he says, yes, I mean, we were poor. There's no doubt about it, actually. And his mother struggled to keep that family together. Yeah. How did you come across his work? Like everybody else, I, I read it when I was younger. I didn't read it at school. I read it as, um, as a young adult, you know, around university times, actually. And I particularly enjoyed As I Walked Out, because that seemed to me to be the aspiration of a lot of the people in their 20s, in the 1960s, that seemed to be their aspiration to move out, to break out, to extend their boundaries. And Laurie Lee offered a, offered a way to do that, you know, by just, you know, walking, as he said, walking to Southampton. He'd never seen the sea. And then going on to London and working on a building site. I mean, who didn't work on a building site in the 1960s? I certainly did. <laughs> There's also, which I was very pleased to see confirmed in his own words, that old story, of, which I'd always thought was apocryphal, of some tourists coming up to him. 
Oh, yeah, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. You tell me where Laurie Lee's bench. Yeah, that's right, yes. He's sitting outside the Woolpack and um, two young schoolgirls with clipboards come along and um, say to him, sorry to interrupt you, sir, but could you tell us where Laurie Lee's grave is? <laughs> that's, uh, that's one of his favourite ones, I think, actually. I mean, one of the things that comes across in the conversations is his humour. I mean, it's... Um, I think um, one of the things I was trying to reflect on was that um, Laurie was a very slow writer. He was a writer. He wrote, wrote in pencil. He, he rejected a lot of his own work. He, 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 was a, he was very methodical about his writing. And I think the big difference, of course, with, um, with an interview for radio or for television is that you can't be slow. You have to respond to the interviewer. So your, your style, your approach is slightly different. But he still had this brilliant way of finishing each um, story with a bit of humour. For example, um, he talks about his great friend Frank Mansell when they together are reciting poetry at an event at Cheltenham Ladies College. And um, they walk on, uh, one him from the left and one from the right. And um, they, they command this audience of young girls and their teachers. And... Um, and at the end of it, um, there are any questions? And Frank, um, Frank Mansell is asked a question, what makes a good poet? And his answer is, never get married, death to poetry. And we were talking to Laurie about this, and he looked up and he said, made the teachers twitch a bit. <laughs> <laughs> that, that happened all the time. It was so wonderful to hear that sort of thing. But in, uh, spontaneous, really. Yeah. There's also, I mean, he does have this way, doesn't he, of, because he's just almost free associating you'll get this sort of first sort of gazetteer of names and places and where you know this was and that was and then suddenly drop in a story that's kind of quite macabre i mean the mill pond story has this extraordinary passage doesn't it maybe we should listen to it but there was one very very macabre thing happened here which i'll always associate with this pond jones's pond that belonged to the squire and because of and the milkman came in rather late one morning, Fred Bates, young man, and my sister said, "What? where you been, Fred Bates? What happened to you? You're late. And he looked, wait, he said, I seen her. It was Miss Flynn. She was look, looking up at me with her eyes wide open, her hair all loose, and I wanted to stitch on, and she was drowned. And I dropped my, I dropped my bucket, and they said, well, he said, you better have a cup of tea. And he said, well, I've had about five already because he was telling the story all around the village. So he became a bit of a hero. But we came down here and the women were gathered around the pond and the village women who'd heard the story. They'd already taken her body away on a hurdle. And there was this uh, sheen of milk still on the lake where Fred had dropped his milk churn. And I thought, I remember thinking, and the women were talking, Miss Flynn, poor Miss Flynn. You wouldn't think it. I only saw her a couple of days ago, and she was down in Stroud in a lot of colonial, and she said to me, I said, good morning, Miss Flynn, and she said, good morning, like she often does, and I thought, oh, this talk, is this what happens when you die, they say. They saw you home in colonial. Miss Flynn was a sort of Dante Gabriel Rossetti heroine, tragic young, young girl. I never understood what the story, what was behind it all, but I do remember thinking, I was about eight, thinking, that's where Miss Flynn came down in the night and lay down in the pond and pulled the water over her head and drowned. Do you think Laurie's work is going to 
going to live, is going to survive? Well, I think it is surviving, isn't it? I mean, there's no doubt about it. He's um, he's an author who people seek out. And he did say to me that, um, not this. Is, I never recorded this, but he said that um, what publishers really want from their authors is for them to be very productive but live short lives. And I've tried to do the reverse. I've tried to live a long life and write as little as possible. So I think his, I think his work is does survive. I think the universality of some of it. Um, he talks about war in Spain. Uh, we're, you know, we're experiencing war in the, in the Middle East at the moment. These, these themes, leaving home, returning, the sense of place, the importance of landscape, the role of the ordinary, I think, are themes which really do reoccur. But I think alongside that, and uh, we devoted one of the chapters in the book to Lois' poetry, at the time, I wanted to see if I could make, because a lot of his poetry is about season and landscape, I wanted to see if um, I could thread the poems through the film. I never did that, in fact, actually. But to hear him talking about how he wrote poetry, how you start a poem, how you end a poem, particularly the poem Christmas Landscape about the war in 1941, is just absolutely spine-chillingly brilliant. David Parker and the late Laurie Lee. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. And if you did, we very much hope that you'll subscribe on your podcast provider of choice and or rate and review us. Well, especially if you liked it. If you hated it, don't, don't feel you have to review it. And equally, if there's something that you wanted to ask us about, something you think we could do better or something you enjoyed, please do send us your feedback to podcast at spectator.co.uk. Thanks again for listening. And please join us for our next episode.